I'm Nick Bastow, and in this Public Sector Perspectives episode, we continue our exploration of workplace well-being. This series has been developed in partnership with Iba Victoria's People and Culture Community of Practice, and today we're talking to Maria Katsonis about her experience of mental illness whilst working as an Executive Director in the Victorian Public Service. It's a personal story, but it's one we can all learn from, because the National Study of Mental Health and Wellbeing in 2021 found that more than two in every five working-age Australians have experienced a mental disorder during their lifetime. In this discussion, Maria talks frankly about what happened to her, how it changed the way she viewed her work, and how we should be thinking about staying well whilst working in the public sector. Maria's well-placed to make those assessments. She's a former leader in the VPS who then went on to work at the University of Melbourne and the Australian and New Zealand School of Government, giving her perspectives on some of the biggest systemic challenges that our sector faces. She was also recently appointed as Deputy Chair of Victoria's new Collaborative Centre for Mental Health and Wellbeing, which was one of the recommendations of the Royal Commission into Victoria's mental health system. And as you'll hear, Maria is someone who's not afraid of speaking publicly about her own experience of mental illness and how it affected her personal and working life. With all that expertise, I began by asking Maria about the word well-being and what it actually means to her particularly in terms of well-being at work. And just a warning that this discussion does include references to suicide. So I'm going to answer it from two perspectives. And the first perspective is actually going to be the personal one. And, and at a personal level, well-being for me is clearly involves my mental health, but my mental health is also subject to a range of other um, uh, uh, influences and factors. So for me, it is about that combination of physical, mental, and emotional health that comes together uh, to provide this sense of well-being for me. The one I have to be most attentive to is obviously the mental health aspect. As you have said, I have experienced um, mental illness in the past. But when we think about well-being, well-being is not just about the absence of illness. So I'm not well because I am managing my mental, Ill, my mental illness, right, because I have the absence of illness at the moment as a result of medication, psychologist, psychiatrist, whatever I need to do to keep myself mentally healthy and mentally well. If you take that broader understanding about not just the absence of, 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 um, of disease and illness, it then comes down to me about life satisfaction and happiness, and that's where the emotional that's where the physical and also what your relationship with work does to contribute to the emotional um, and uh, and the mental. The other perspective on well-being, and I do have to say this because, you know, Nick, you know me for way back, I am a policy wonk, and this week we had the federal budget. And so as a policy wonk, I was really interested to see well-being being talked about in the context of the um, federal budget and a shift away from purely macroeconomic indicators such as GDP and more about measuring um, what matters to people and measuring well-being, you know, and, and at that macro level, we're looking at the kind of factors I talked about at a micro level, but extrapolated to a whole of society level. So about social connection, civic engagement, work and job quality, about health. And so what I find interesting uh, this week in particular, and then the connection between the two, is that the feds have announced that they are going to, you know, develop, I think it's called uh, measuring what matters 
statement to take that. So I think, you know, are we going to have this little bridge now between the connection of what we've experienced as individuals and what we need as a society? So I think that's an interesting space for um, public purpose professionals to keep an eye on. Let's talk about that personal moment just for a second. You wrote your own submission to the Royal Commission, uh, talking about your own personal experience of mental illness and work. Could you describe a little bit of what you experienced, how it impacted your working world, and how your working world changed after that experience? I not only wrote a submission, I wrote a whole book, so I'm not going to recount the entire experience, otherwise we'll be here for hours on end. So what's interesting, just let's touch on the uh, my personal story featured in the final report of the Royal Commission in 2019. It resonated, from what I gather, as much as it did in 2008, when I first, no, 2009, when I first started to share my story, which says something to me about how far we haven't gone. But if I cycle back to... Um, 2008, I experienced a profound episode of clinical depression, except I didn't realise it at the time. At the time, I was feeling all of the symptoms. I was feeling physical symptoms of lethargy, um, uh, fatigue, an emotional flatness, a dullness, a disconnect from life, an incapacity to get out of bed. Happened for me for a couple of months, but I did not equate equate that uh, with mental ill health. I thought I was suffering from extreme stress. And so, you know, I decided to do everything that one does and make promises to myself about going to the gym, leaving work on time, eating healthy, because that would fix it, didn't fix it, progressively got worse, where all I could do was spend every waking hour in bed except go to work. Well, I could still just have enough energy, enough time to keep going to work during that time. And I don't know why, but I went on to um, Beyond Blue and the Beyond Blue website and I did one of those questionnaires. And let me tell you, they're clinical questionnaires. They're not the kind of questionnaires you find in the back of Women's Weekly. But a questionnaire that put in, you know, my responses to their questions and at the end of it got a pop-up, right? The pop-up said, you are suffering from... Uh, severe mental, uh, severe depression. I was right at the, you know, at the extreme scale. You need to see a professional immediately. And I looked at that and I rejected it outright. And I rejected it outright because I thought at that point I conceived of depression as some sort of character failing, as some sort of weakness. So I experienced a form of self-stigma that said, uh, you know, people like you, Maria, I'm an executive. I have no qualms about admitting at that time I was your classic type A high achiever, people like you do not experience depression. You will pull yourself up from the bootstraps. And that was the mindset uh, I took to it in terms of rejecting um, that uh, that advice and refusing to associate myself with mental ill health because I saw it as a character failing. I progressively got sicker and sicker because it's not a character failing. Uh, and I got to the situation where I found myself in life-threatening um, situations in terms of uh, not wanting to be here anymore and apologies to listeners if this is triggering for you please do make yourself available of any assistance that you need but that's how severe it got for me to realize that actually perhaps I did need help after all it was actually having uh, and I'm going to talk quite bluntly about it because that's what I'm known for I don't like to sugarcoat you know, when I talk about severe depression and a catastrophic episode, what does that actually mean? Well, it means being an evidence-based policy wonk, I developed an evidence-based suicide plan that I knew was going to work because I've researched it like I would any other policy problem. And I had acquired everything I needed to take my own life. And I came to a crunch point where the decision was 
Either I put this plan into place or I accept I have illness and I need treatment. And I still am not quite sure because, you know, if you were betting, if I was a betting person at the time, I wouldn't have said it was the plan because my life had got to this stage where I just, there was no past, no present, no future, just this horrible void that I was stuck in and I needed to put an end to it. But whatever it was, I didn't. I sought help immediately and I was hospitalised within 24 hours and spent five weeks uh, in a psychiatric hospital where I began recovery, uh, continued recovery, and then had another four weeks off work before I uh, I went back to work. So I'm away from work for nine weeks. When I went into hospital, my um, uh, GP said to me, you'll probably be there for a week. So I told my CEO, at the time I was working for a public sector agency, I uh, told my CEO it'll be a week. End of week one's going to be another week, another week, another week, another week until nine weeks have rolled on and I go back to work and people are wondering, Marie, why were you away for so long after nine weeks um, uh, away when we were only told you were going to be away from one week? And, of course, uh, there was my team. I was managing a team of 15 people at the time and my deputy, you know, had to step up to the plate and the team had to step up to the plate and people would ask me. And I thought, well, what do I, how do I respond? No one, no one tells you what to say, Nick. This, no one tells you, like, here you go, you're ready to go back to work. Go back to work. It's like, well, how do I manage this? How do I integrate to these two parts? Do I keep them, do I keep them separate? And I realised that it was such a horrible experience for me um, that I did not want to be captured by or, uh, and hide behind the secrecy of this, of, this, of this profound experience that fundamentally has changed my life. When you returned to work, can you describe what some of the most useful things that people did and that helped you? So the things that, that, that helped me was basically about came down to compassion and, and empathy, but continued compassion and empathy, right? So, yeah, you come back after nine weeks away, everyone's really concerned after two weeks, and then it's like, oh, Marie's back. She's recovered from her sprained ankle. I don't have a sprained ankle. You can't see what, I'm, what I experience. I still experience mood variations, even though I do everything I do to look after myself. I still have up days and I still have down days when I'm not kind of 100% and I'm not on fire. You don't, you don't see that. And it was great for people who would just touch base with me every now and then to see how I was travelling. And ask, <laughs> here's, my other, here's my other bane, not just ask, are you okay, on are you okay day, but ask me if I was okay, because you can ask me, are you okay, on the other 364 days of, uh, of the week. Something a colleague once said to me, which was a backhanded compliment, was, oh, yeah, Maria, I just keep forgetting you've been sick because you're such a high-functioning depressive. And you kind of think, well, what does that mean? I'm a high-functioning depressive. It means that you don't need to, um, uh, you know, Express any kind of concern or ask about my about how I am because I've got all uh, all all the bases all the bases covered and it's not, so for me it was about recognizing that um, I live with this 24 seven and being able to acknowledge that because that means I can acknowledge it back I can say actually I but yeah particularly to colleagues I'm not having a great day at the moment I might actually have to leave a little bit early today. Or I'm a bit foggy in the brain. I think I would need to reschedule this particular meeting because I still have to make some adjustments like that 14 years later. And it's easier to have those conversations when people have that broader awareness and broader understanding. One of the things that 
Deborah Blackman and Fiona Buick talked about in our last well-being episode was the difference between what's called hedonic well-being and eudaimonic well-being. Hedonic well-being is a bit, as you described, the feeling of being happy in yourself and feeling well and feeling confident. That's in contrast to eudaimonic well-being, which comes from an experience of creating meaning and purpose. And their point was that they often felt that in the public service world, it's the second area that's less focused on. I'm wondering what your thoughts are about that sort of distinction between those two types of well-being and how useful it is. I, I would rather reframe that because I don't think the distinction is that helpful, to be honest. I think it's an, it's an integration, if you like, between the two rather than a separation. And I'd like to reframe it in the context of something, uh, a framework that combines both of those, right? But I took away uh, from my five weeks in a psych hospital. What do you do in a psych hospital for five weeks? You attend a lot of workshops. You attend workshops from anything from understanding the side effects of medication to uh, mindfulness to cognitive behaviour therapy to dealing with illness in the workplace. And I went to one particular workshop where they presented a prescription for happiness. Slash well-being, right? Let's talk about happiness slash well-being. And it's a prescription that has made a fundamental difference to how I live my life. And it's a prescription that is at the core. I have a stay well plan at the core of my stay well plan. And there were three aspects to that prescription. One, something or someone you love. Now, for some people, that might be a partner, in my case, Yes, sad single cat lady, it's Molly the cat, but I also have two gorgeous nephews and I have some very deep platonic friendships. So someone or something to love. The second is something to do that you're passionate about and this is where purpose comes into play. I think what we have to recognise that for some people purpose will be clearly associated with work. For me, purpose is fundamentally from the type of how I achieve it to the kind of work I choose to do now is fundamentally tied to my purpose. But for some people, purpose isn't work. Yes, we work in the public purpose sector. Yes, people might want to do a good job, but it's not necessarily the job that gives them purpose. It could be quilting on the weekend. It could be the fact that they like running ultra marathons. That's not to say that they don't give everything to their work, but you need to find something that connects you with a sense of purpose, whatever purpose that is. And the last one is something to look forward to because something to look forward to gives you that sense of a future, a sense of hope and a sense of possibility. And it can be something big, like the holiday you have got planned, but it could be something as simple as a picnic on the weekend with um, my nephews. One of the other messages that came through from the discussion with Deborah and Fiona was that well-being can't just be left to people and culture groups within public sector organisations. It has to be something that leadership thinks about too. So I wanted to finish by giving the opportunity to talk to directly to three groups of people. The first is if you were talking to a group of people and culture or HR specialists in the public sector, what would be your message to them now about how their workplace well-being programs could make a difference to their colleagues. Uh, I'm going to draw on my number one now, uh, being a mental health advocate, and I'm going to draw about the value of lived experience in informing their work. Uh, one of the things I, I did, Nick, before coming on is saying, what is the VPS doing in relation to mental health and wellbeing? The VPS, not individual departments. And I found 
something called the Mental Health and Wellbeing Charter for the VPS. Don't know how much currency it still have. It's still publicly available, so I assume it has. When I look at that Mental Health and Wellbeing Charter, two things struck me. One, and it was developed some years ago, I believe, it was developed by leaders in people and culture, but it does not reflect lived experience. And second, the kind of language it takes, it takes what I would call protective language. It's about protecting the organisation. It's about protecting OH&S. It's about protecting safety and management and does not take a person-centred approach to how they talk about kind of promotion. So my comment to people and culture is in your own work, in your own departments, you have to have lived experience at the centre. And that is the lived experience opposed both people with mental ill health and psychological distress and also the people who care for them. And that was a message that came out very clearly from the Royal Commission. If you look at the Royal Commission's recommendations, it's fundamentally premised on the value of lived experience. And I can't say for certain, but I would suspect we do not have that same value in uh, in the VPS. You only have to say, look and say, where is the no equivalent of open minds now? There isn't a lived experience in, uh, in the public service. So that's my advice to people uh, and culture. The second piece, if I can have a double dip at the cherry, is to recognise the distinction from people and, you know, mental um, ill health comes in all shapes and all sizes and all different kind of um, disorders. But you have to recognise that for some people it will be a complete recovery. It will be a one-off episode. And I think we're very good. If we are good at anything in the VPS, it's supporting the one-off episode. What we're not as good as is supporting and assisting the person with chronic uh, mental ill health. Um, you know what government department I work for. I'll let uh, listeners figure it out themselves. One of the things when I was advocating within the VPS, as I did up until the end of, I think it was 2016 or 2017, I can't foggy memory now, I used to advocate for not just a return to work plan, how we go back to work, but you need a stay at work plan. How do you keep someone engaged at work and recognise the journey that they will take with their recovery. I can tell you that when I left the government department I worked for, still did not have a state work plan. Even though I kept banging on, I will, you know, I'm banging on about it now because I'm hoping someone will hear it uh, in a government department that might have returned to work but doesn't have that same focus on state work. Because even though I have mental ill health, I can still be productive. And you can't underestimate, if you're talking about purpose, if you're talking about purpose, what the capacity to be able to contribute means for your self-esteem and means for your own sense of worth and your sense of self, which is what mental illness takes away from you. If you were talking to a group of public sector leaders, what would you tell them about wellbeing? Go have a look at the Mental Health and Wellbeing Charter, public sector uh, leaders, and tell me if that still has any relevance at a whole of VPS level. And if it still does, go away and revise it, please. Uh, the VPS is roughly the size of National Australia Bank. I went online just before to look at what does NAB do in the context of its well-being. Its policy, right, just look at its policy and some of its initiatives, is written in a language that is humanistic, that is person-centred, and that puts the emphasis on the person. It does not put the emphasis on the system or the organisation. So public service leaders, 
revisit the Mental Health and Wellbeing Charter, especially in light of some of the principles that have come out from the Royal Commission into Mental Health. And if you could, what would you say to the younger Maria who was starting to feel that there was something wrong in her life? I'm going to go back to two time points. Um, The first time point is quite clearly the profound episode that I uh, described with you. I would say to that Maria to have sought help straight away and jettisoned any notion of uh, character failings and self-stigma, right? Just take it away. Go away and seek help, you know? If I think about it, if I needed, if I had a gastro problem and I needed to see a gastroenterologist or a knee problem had to see an orthopaedic surgeon, what's so different between that and seeing a psychiatrist because I've got a mental health issue? But no, I equated that as different. One of the things I've tried to do is understand what led to the Kahoopi Kahuna, as I describe it, and I've unpacked that I probably had two undiagnosed, at least two undiagnosed and two untreated episodes of depression, even even in my even younger years, uh, when I probably sensed that things weren't quite right. And again, just check in and find out now. If you don't think something is quite right, go and seek help straight away, or at the very least, talk. And it could just simply be a GP. Go talk to you, go talk to a, a, a GP. If that's a step too far, try a helpline. Don't leave it to fester because one of the reasons I, I do what I do and I speak so open so openly is to remove that notion of stigma and to encourage uh, help-seeking behaviour. So take my own medicine and encourage my younger versions of self, either version A or version B, go and seek help and not think of it as um, a character failing or a vulnerability to be ashamed of. Maria Katsonis, thanks so much for being part of Public Sector Perspectives. Thank you very much, Nick. My pleasure. On the news and resources page of the Upper Victoria website, you can find links to the book that Maria wrote called The Good Greek Girl, which includes her description of mental illness at work. And if this discussion has caused you distress and you need support or help, then contact Lifeline's 24-hour hotline on 13 11 14. This podcast is part of Iber Victoria's series on well-being in the workplace, which is exploring the perspectives of people and culture professionals, showcasing examples of workplace well-being, and creating space to discuss the broader themes and systemic issues that underpin well-being in the workplace. The series is developed in partnership with the People and Culture Community of Practice at IPA Victoria, which is Victoria's peak public sector professional association and which aims to connect, empower and celebrate Victoria's public purpose sector. If you'd like to know more about this work, then search for People and Culture on the IPA Victoria website, which is vic.ipaa.org.au. You can stay in touch with what we do by following us on LinkedIn at IPAA Victoria or on Twitter at IPAA VIC. This program is produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I'm Nick Basto and thanks for listening.